This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, a number of really interesting games on the board this evening. Boston Bruins facing off against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Pittsburgh faces off against Washington. And the Buffalo Sabres, can they do it? Face off against the Winnipeg Jets. Dan Dunleavy, for everyone listening to us right now in Toronto, will recognize that name. Uh, everyone will recognize that name as one of the, I want to say, OGs around the Fan 590. He's, the, of course, the play-by-play voice of the Buffalo Sabres, and he joins me now. Dan, how are you today, pal? I'm good. Nice to hear from you. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, it's great to hear your voice. Now, I've always wondered about this. Were you a day oneer at the Fan? Um, pretty close. Um, not exactly day one, but um, pretty soon after after they launched the all sports format, um, I remember walking in and auditioning for a position with Scott Metcalf. I was working up in Orangeville, Ontario right. at the time, and um, Alan Davis, who was a program director there, who now is the program director in Buffalo, interestingly enough, for our games are simulcast. Um, nice. They asked if I would come down to work. So, yeah, I did. I worked seven days a week, Jeff, just like you did back then. Worked five days up in Orangeville, two days as a fan in Toronto back in uh, the early 90s, and then uh, transitioned to full-time there, where I met uh, a young Jeff Merrick and the rest of the gang. And you would have been working with, at that point, I think you're doing national sports radio with Tim Haffey. Boy, we're going back in the, in the yeah. way back machine here. All, all, all the, yeah, all the well, so you were, you were in Dale Howard. You were, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, well, you bring up the Tim Haffey name. I really have Tim Haffey to thank for this opportunity because he was the play-by-play voice of the Toronto St. Michael's Majors. And he was the encyclopedia, much like you, uh, certainly in, in your time doing what you do for just knowing everything about hockey and every junior player and i thought who is this guy how does he know who all these guys are the andy kyotos and you know all the studs back then with oh, toronto wow. that they had at st mike's <laughs> yeah and then uh all, all of a sudden tim happy wasn't calling their games anymore and i remember uh somebody at rogers tv back in the day asked if i'd be interested in, in doing some ohl play-by-play and that's where it all started so hmm Awesome. And so yeah. you were also uh, dovetailing with a gig in Dale Howardchuck country in Orangeville as well, the late, great Dale Howardchuck. Uh, the one thing I think yeah. of when I think of Orangeville and hockey is there used to be, and I think it's gone now, an Eddie Shack Donuts in Orangeville. Whenever I'd go <laughs> yeah. through, I'd always stop at Eddie Shack. Do you remember that spot? Yeah, that was in Caledon, actually, on the way up, right at the corner of 10 and 24 highways. Um, just as you make That's the climb it. on the hill going That's up the there. One. Yeah. And we, um, I remember actually Eddie Shack came into our station up there in Orangeville. That was a great 50,000 watt FM station, Jeff, that, um, I was able to get some guys up there. Bobby Hall came in, Eddie Shack came in, uh, because just as you mentioned, it's, it's such good sports country up there, lacrosse and hockey. And interestingly enough, I just talked to Cole Perfetti about him attending the uh, Hill Academy, which based out of, um, Caledon, just South of Orangeville, if you want to call it Orangeville by that point. Um, and Cole Perfetti spent yeah. a lot of time at the Hill Academy and, and learned a lot of things there. So we had that conversation this morning here in Winnipeg uh, before these two teams face off. So that was a good chat. That's Yeah, Hill Academy used to be up on Rutherford Road, um, and it's yeah, since moved to, to just outside of Orangeville, mainly lacrosse, but uh, some hockey as well. Okay, speaking of hockey, I, gotta, yep. like, yeah. I, I think we're all following along here and hoping that the Buffalo Sabres can do this, much to Washington's huh. chagrin. And if you look at the points, the Caps have the second wild card spot. But if you look at the percent, if you look at the winning percentage, it's the Buffalo Sabres spot. Three games in hand. Washington plays tonight. Uh, the Swords play tonight against the Winnipeg Jets and Cole Perfetti. What's the mood around the team? Like in their mind, do they already have that wild card spot locked up? I mean, I know the points don't say it. The winning percentage does. Mm-hmm. The math looks favorable for the Buffalo Sabres. What's the mood here? Well, the mood amongst the players is just one of continued growth. And I think, you know, they're, they grow more and more confident with every game, which you can expect, obviously. Uh, and success has a lot to do with that. But there are still moments in games, Jeff, where you can tell that this is a group that are trying to shake off some bad habits, whether it be defensive zone coverage or uh, you know, when to jump into plays, uh, when not to, when to stay above the puck, and all those little decisions that you have to make. You know, the other night in Dallas, the first few minutes of the game, Jeff, they weren't pretty at all, and I think everybody walked away. Well, I know everybody walked away with a little bit of sigh of relief from that. So I think the attitude here is that they 100% feel that they can do it as a group of players. They're a confident young group. Um, 
And with some of the teams that they're being able to hang with now, as you would know, you start winning in Boston in overtime. You start winning in Dallas. You go into St. Louis. I know the Blues have been an injured team and up and down, but traditionally Buffalo would be a team that would go in there and, and wouldn't have a lot of success. So they're kind of shaking off some of these, hey, in the past it hasn't gone well for us here, but this group doesn't think that way. Like Owen Power isn't coming in here thinking, boy, we haven't done well here. and the, We, for him, is right now. So, you know, he grows into his game with goals in two straight. So they feel confident, Jeff. I, I'm not going to say they feel they've got anything locked up. I, I don't think I'd go that far. You know, one of us uh, mentioning to Elliot a couple of seconds ago, having a conversation with someone and, you know, wondering about, you know, this race between Buffalo and Washington and who has what. Uh-huh. And I was wondering about, you know, do the Sabres have the depth for this? And this person said to me, you know, you can argue about depth, but the one thing that the Sabres have is they're a younger team and they'll have energy all the way through the season. They'll still be the growing pains and the mistakes, sometimes catastrophic, yep. but they'll have energy all the way through the season. And I, it, it leads me to wonder, you know, this race continues and it gets a trade deadline. Like we looked at Kevin Adams in the off season and, you know, it was a lot of contract signings. And we think of Tage Thompson, certainly uh, Matias Samuelson, certainly, but there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of new faces coming in. Like there was Eric Comrie. Uh, there was Ilya Labushkin, yep. but it wasn't a season where Kevin Adams went out and said, okay, we're getting near the top of our winning cycle. I'm going to call for some reinforcements. Do you think he calls for reinforcements if this team's in a playoff spot come trade deadline? Well, I can answer that question this way, and only by the conversations that we have had uh, as a broadcast group uh, or just being around Kevin every day, is that he has given zero indication to us that he intends to plan uh, change his plan at the start of the season, which was to really, Jeff, have what's happening happen, which is, as you mentioned, not a lot of new faces were brought in. They certainly needed to find out if they, um, you know, had something in Eric Comrie who looks like he might start tonight. He's in the starters. He's in the Sabres net here at the morning skate in Winnipeg. Whether that means anything or not, I don't want to confirm that for you, but he's in it. And he hasn't played a game in a while. Mm -hmm. So you bring Comrie in, you bring Labushkin in, as you mentioned, which is some, you know, some heaviness on the back line and a player that everyone likes. uh, And he's fit right into this group. But you're right. He didn't shake it up for the purpose of giving the young core that showed signs at the end of last season, which we've seen in past Sabres teams, if they could keep it going. So they have. So your question is valid and everyone's asking, okay, but if you really keep it going to the point that you're within a point or even have the second wild card by the time the break comes up or the trade deadline, what are you going to do? So Mm -hmm. I've not asked Kevin that question, but he's never given me any reason to think that he's going to change the thinking to the point where, okay, so we've got these prospects in Raj who did very well at the world juniors and teams are going to start looking at the, the Roseans and the Kulich and, yeah. and different players. I don't know if he's willing to part with that because you still need that depth as an organization going forward. Correct. I mean, he doesn't want this to be a two or three year run. He wants this. He wants this to be a, you know, an eight year run here where the Sabres are consistently in it or certainly more than eight. So I don't think, to answer your question, we'd see a drastic change. That doesn't mean that I don't think in my mind that he wouldn't say, hey, we're in a good spot here if we add blank and we have room to do it. So I'm, I'm, I'm certain that he will consider it, but I don't, th- I don't think you'll see a drastic change. That's just my opinion in, in the plan from the start of the year. So- Right. Um, you mentioned Eric Carmody a second ago. I don't, I don't think it would surprise anyone if he does indeed start tonight uh, playing yeah. against oh. one of his former teams, the Winnipeg Jets. Um, I, I think we're all sort of wondering about how this, and you know, Fridge and I were just talking about it before you came on, how this, you know, three-headed beast is is going to work its way is going to work its way through here. Um, it feels very much as if, from a from a planning point of view. Um, Lukanen's arrive one year soon, which is fine. Like that's that's great. Like that's a nice problem to have if you're Kevin Adams and the yeah. Buffalo Sabres. But having said that, nobody likes the three goaltender system. Um, people will try it and then say, "Now, nah, what were we thinking? How has it worked so far?" I mean, it depends a lot on the the, the temperament of each of the goaltenders. Um, how has uh-huh. it worked so far, and how do you see the the goalie situation playing itself out? All I can say right now to that, if I was the coaches slash GM looking in on this, as you asked me that question, right now nothing's broken. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yes, it's not a, a situation. I understand that 
you know, you, me, or Elliot, if we were running a team, would, would also say, hey, let's have three goalies. Um, but at the same time, you know, Craig Anderson is such a valued piece to a young hockey team that at times, as you mentioned, could be prone to mistakes because of youth and learning the game and just trying to find a way to get control of just trying to find a way to get control of a game back again. You know, if, for example, Tage Thompson, mm-hmm. he's putting up points. Rob Ray and I were talking about this and he's scoring a ton of goals. But sometimes, you know, he was scoring at such a flurry that when he backs off to a point where he's got five and five in 10 games, it almost looks like he's not scoring. And I'm sure Cage even feels that way. But <laughs> then you got Craig Anderson sitting on the bench. who probably says, hey, Cage, uh, what are you worried about? You, you got 10 points in 10 games. I'd take that for a career. So would hundreds of guys. So just go and play. You know, that kind of conversation that can yeah. be there on the bench comes from Craig Anderson or even if he's just in the room. So, to, you know, again, to your question, Yes, nobody wants three goaltenders, but right now it's not broken. Now, the key in all this, obviously, is the play of Eric Comrie, right? I mean, Comrie is still a guy that's proven to enough hockey people who've known him throughout his junior and youth hockey days to the NHL um, that think this guy is a stud, that he is indeed could be a number one goaltender in the NHL. So now coming back from injury, he's only had the one start since. This will be start number two if indeed he gets to go tonight. To me, he's the wild card into how this all plays out. And then I don't know what conversations are had from there. But again, I'm also a guy, like I say, I mean, I've broken tons of things in my life, Jeff. If it's not broke, just leave it alone. If it's working <laughs> right now, think right, right now things are working. So you just, you know, I assume again, if it's not a worry, why make it one? You and me both, Dan. You and me both, pal. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about <laughs> Jeff Skinner. So uh, he scores yeah. his 20th the other night. So now there's four 20-goal scorers uh, with the Buffalo Sabres. Yep. Like, I'm I'm real happy. For, I think we all are real happy for Jeff Skinner. Um, you know, the the saga that he went through uh, with, the, with the previous regime and on the fourth line and out of the lineup and the acrimony with Newport and the Sabres. And it was just heading... And he had an awful season because of it. It's great that he's back. It's great that he's productive, you know, trending towards the most productive season of his career. How has he done this? Like, you've been there through all of it. How, is, how has Skinner uh-huh. been able to, to recla- reclaim his game? You've, you've seen all of it, Dan. Well, um, a lot of the credit does have to go to where Cage Thompson has come in his game. Um, and then, of course, you know, the so many balls just kind of bounced the right way here. And Jeff kept himself in a mindset where that he's always believed in his game. And all the points that you brought up 100% played a role in perhaps um, certainly not dragging down his love of the game or his certainly his uh, compete level. But, you know, he had to hang in there a little bit. And then so fortune turns and Tate Thompson uh, all of a sudden becomes a centerman. And he's put with this guy who's not played center in the NHL before, who blossoms into a 38-goal scorer skating with Jeff, who kind of says to himself probably, okay, I've done this once in Buffalo with another guy who was a pretty good center. Now this kid shows up, and, and he's proven to be this kind of player, and he has fun playing with Tage. They communicate great. They're doing it right now on the ice. They have fun together for good reason because it's working. And then Alex Tuck shows up, who – you know, and when I talk to a lot of guys in the Eastern Conference who face Alex Tuck for the first time, they're kind of in awe. They're thinking, we had no idea how fast this guy was. And that addition to that line as well. Yeah, and well, yeah, big. And that's what everyone thinks. Hey, power forward, great. He's going to go lean on guys and stand in front of the net. But when Alex Tuck gets the puck and takes two strides, even with a defender, it is over unless you've got the right angle. Uh, As far as not scoring, but getting behind the defense and creating a play is what I mean by that comment. So Jeff now has yeah. those two guys riding with him. And that, I know if it was if it was me, if it was you, I'd be saying, giddy up. Like, where can we go with this? And all they've done is go to really good places as a top line. And even if the second line, the kids, Paterka and Quinn, are struggling a little bit, you have the consistency of Dylan Cousins to back that line up. So it kind of, you know, it just gives them a breather on the bench. And now we've got a third line here that Victor Olison's finding his five-on-five goal scoring case in middle stats all of a sudden turn into a bit of a bull on the wall. So now that top line has a breather before they come out on the next shift, but they're always out for the offense's own draw. And Jeff Skinner is a key part in that. Mm-hmm. And I just think his, his enjoyment and love of the game. And to be quite honest with you, uh, just how the city of Buffalo has taken him. I mean, they, this sounds kind of, it's very personal to say, but they love his smile. They love his attitude. They love the fact that he's a chirper on the ice. Um, and that he's oh, yeah. a productive hockey player. Yeah. So there's a lot to like about Jeff. 
Um, I'm happy for him. I know you know Jeff pretty well, and you're right. He hung in there through oh, yeah. some moments that weren't fantastic for him, but it's not like he's ever lost his drive and will to compete, and he's found two really good linemates that kind of keep bringing that. They bring it out of each other, so they push each other, and um, um, yeah, it's going well for him. And he's a pretty good skater last time I checked. Um, Dan, yeah, it's been great. Is. Thanks yeah. so much. I don't know how he does the, it, but... The, the, <laughs> thanks for the reminiscing about uh, about Orangeville and the old fan in the, in the early days. And listen, look forward to tonight's matchup. Buffalo Sabres and the Winnipeg Jets. Buffalo remain one of the most interesting teams to watch in the NHL. Thanks so much for doing this. Enjoy the game tonight. Rick Ralph says hello. I spent some time with him yesterday. Take care, Jeff. Hey, what a wonderful guy. Please send my best. I love Rick Rowe. There's another OG from the fan. Um, God, what a wonderful guy. Uh, so many great people have come through uh, 590 in Toronto and have found homes uh, elsewhere, but uh, there is a, a sort of common bond between everyone who's ever worked uh, at 590 and even previous at 1430 uh, in Toronto. One one final thought um, on Alex Tuck. I've talked a lot on this show about what Hampus Lindholm has meant to the Boston Bruins. Like I think that the presence of Hampus Lindholm has changed everything about the Boston Bruins. And I know that you know uh, uh, that they'll we'll talk a lot about Jim Montgomery and you know the coaching change, the return of Krejci. He comes back in, Bergeron back for one kick at the can, and what Pasternak is doing. But I don't think anything changed the complexion of the Boston Bruins quite like the presence of Hampus Lindholm. I'll say the exact same thing about Alex Tuck in Buffalo. I know that Tage Thompson has popped big time, and I feel bad for him because in any other year, he'd probably be a consideration for the Hart Trophy. And we just talked about what Jeff Skinner has been able to do. But the minute the Buffalo Sabres got Alex Tuck away from Vegas and on their team, everything changed. Everything around him changed. I'll go as far as to say everything that Lindholm has done to Boston, Tuck has done to Buffalo Every year, Tage Thompson should be sending numerous Christmas cards uh, to Alex Tuck. Really, everybody should on that Buffalo Sabres team and in the organization. I think as much as we talk about Thompson and Rasmus Dahlin, the whole thing revolves around Alex Tuck. He's been that good for that team. Random player of the day and Shannon Goldman coming up next. The Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, so here's one of the reasons why I love doing this program. Maddie, you'll like this one. So talking to Dan Dunleavy, and he was talking about, you know, doing radio in Orangeville and then, you know, working five days at the fan and two days in Orangeville doing radio there. And I just mentioned offhand, because I used to love when I, I actually, it's funny because I did a year in Orangeville as well, uh, going to Eddie Shack Donuts along the way. And I get a couple of tweets from people, one specifically, Ryan Early. I really hope I'm pronouncing your last name right, bud, uh, who tweets at me. I don't know if you knew this, Maddie. My grandfather owned a bar slash restaurant with Eddie Shack in Orangeville called the Hillbilly Shack. I did not know that Eddie Shack had a bar. First of all, it doesn't surprise me that Eddie Shack had a bar, but I didn't know that there was one in Orangeville called the Hillbilly Shack. Maddie Marchese, did you know that? I did not, but I did. Uh, I did go to Eddie Shack Donuts as a kid, so I mean that brought up some memories as well. It's awesome. I think it's a Tim Hortons now. Someone told me that a while ago. Um, all right, so there you go. So in that spirit, then uh, time now for the random player of the day. We try to do it. We try to do it around this time every single day. Although sometimes because of guests and timing, we have to sort of move it around. But we try to do this every single day. And today, what do we have, and who do we have to thank for this player? We have uh, Craig Janney, almost a point per game player throughout his career, which would surprise some, but a very solid player. And this was sent yep. in by Thomas Stevenson. Okay, Thomas Stevenson, thank you. So Craig Janney, one of the best passers in the history of the NHL, who was also traded for one of the best passers 
in the history of the NHL, and that would be Adam Oates. That would have been the Boston-St. Louis trade. Stefan Quintel also goes uh, in that deal. So Janney played 12 seasons in the NHL. Um, blood clots was the uh, ended his career. Uh, we talk about the passing, and he had, like, if you watched him play, he just had Maddie the softest, softest hands. This guy could feather passes like nobody else. And whenever I hear the name, I always think of his time playing on what was um, my favorite line at the time and was for a number of years with the Boston Bruins. It was uh, Bob Joyce, Craig Janney. And Cam Neely, uh, everybody on that line was profoundly different than the other player, uh, and I think that's what made that whole thing work. Uh, I mentioned the trade to the St. Louis Blues, and then in one of the more intriguing episodes uh, that season, this would have been 1994, the St. Louis Blues signed Peter Nedved to an offer sheet. Okay, and Nedved agrees, so they signed the offer sheet. So an arbitrator has to come in to award uh, what the compensation is going to be to Vancouver. And the arbitrator, I don't know who it was. I always want to see Larry Bertuzzi because he pops up a lot in these stories, but I don't know whether it was Larry or not. Um, the arbitrator awards Craig Janney and a second-round draft pick to the Vancouver Canucks. That second-round draft pick turns into Dave Scatchard. But Janney refuses to report to Vancouver. He's not going. So they have to come up with a trade to get him back to St. Louis. And this is what they come up with. It is Janney back to Vancouver in exchange for Jeff Brown, Brett Hedekin, and Nathan Lafayette. All names that we think about with the Vancouver Canucks and that run to the Stanley Cup final against the New York Rangers in 1994. So that was a real shot in the arm for the Vancouver Canucks, and the St. Louis Blues uh, ended up keeping their player. Um, one of the interesting things, and this will this will wink at a guest coming up at the bottom of the hour. So he was traded from the Arizona Coyotes much later to the Tampa Bay Lightning in exchange for a fifth-round pick who turned into Jay Leach, coach and then we think of you know the Boston Bruins organization and the certainly the Seattle Kraken as well and the rights to our bottom of the hour guest Louis DeBrusque was part of that deal now the thing about Janney is he was a sublime passer but part of the frustration with Craig Janney was he would never shoot the puck or sorry he would only shoot the puck when the time was perfect like it would be endlessly frustrating because we've all been to games where the crowd is chanting shoot 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 which by the way is one of the most annoying things in the world but nonetheless fans do it shoot 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 maybe no one heard that more than Craig Janney and he would just outright refuse unless it was the perfect shot so having a look at hockeyreference.com for career leaders in shooting percentage because I always wonder about Alex Tangay, because in that generation, I don't think anyone had a higher shooting percentage than Alex Tangay, but a lot of it was based on, much like Craig Janney before him, he didn't shoot unless it was the absolute perfect time to do so. Alex Tangay comes in at 21st all-time with a shooting percentage of 18.56. Craig Janney is at 37th. At 17.79, that was his shooting percentage. Do you know who number one is? Hint, he's a colleague. Oh, that's a hard one. He's a colleague. It's a really hard uh, one. I love yeah. this answer, though. I was going to say Colby, but there's no way it's Colby. I'll just laugh that one Oh, off. good Lord. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, he throws so many dumb shots at the net. It wasn't even funny. Uh, <laughs> what are you shooting uh, for? Colby, stop <laughs> shooting. <laughs> Uh, I actually don't know. <laughs> Craig Simpson. Oh, yeah. That Craig makes Simpson, a lot of sense. our very own yeah. Simmer, with a shooting percentage of 23.66. Wow. Number two, we think of the triple, triple crown line, Charlie Simmer at 22.34. Simmer and Simmer. Paul McCl Simmer and Simmer. 
Uh, Paul McLean, number three. Mike Bossy, four. Camille Henry. We're going back to the 50s on this one. And then Yvonne Lambert of the Habs, Rick Middleton. Hey, Nifty. Daryl Sutter, Blaine Stoughton, Rob Brown. That is your top 10. My guy, Kent Nilsson, comes in at number 13, 19.21. Active leaders. You want to take a stab at it? At 17.76. No clue. Leon Dreisaitl. Mm, yeah, sure. At number 38 of all time, 51 of all, 51st of all time, Braden Point of the Tampa Bay Lightning, 17.32. Anyway, um, great passer, but would not shoot unless it was the perfect shot. Do you have anything to color in on today's random player of the day, Craig Janney, Matty? I have two things, actually, and I'll be quick with them. So he's part of the Enfield Sports Cat. Hall of Fame, which is where Enfield, Connecticut, is where he grew up. Um, also part of that Hall of Fame, Bill Rasmussen, who is the co-founder of ESPN. And also? Uh, oh, I, I read through his bio. Go for it. The New England Whalers, baby, or the WHA. Yes. ESPN yes, goes I, all the way back to the WHA, pal. Oh no! I, I and it's 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 old. I know. Um, and then <laughs> this one, this one, yes. this one was a bizarre one for me. So he attended John oh. F. Kennedy Junior High School, but he played for Enfield High School, and is the only all-state player in Connecticut who didn't attend the school they played for. Why is that? I'm assuming because the team, the the, high, the junior high school or whatever he went to, maybe didn't have a team, or he was too good, and maybe he was in like grade eight and played with the the you know as a with the grade nines and tens or whatever the case may be. But I couldn't figure out why. But that is such a weird thing. Like I couldn't imagine playing for another school when attending you know the one that I did. So it's just a very weird thing that I found while searching for stuff and. Um, apparently the only hmm. All-State player in Connecticut to have ever done so. Wow. Uh, so I got a note from Jimmy Murphy, our buddy. Uh, listening to your show, I remember Janny as well. Had a huge goal in Game 7 against the Devils in the 88 Wales Conference Final. True. That line with Neely and Joyce was great. Uh, there you go. Random player of the day, Craig Janney, submitted by Thomas Stevenson. Thomas, thank you. There's some fertile ground there. And it gave us a chance to mention Craig Simpson. Number one in the history of the NHL, in shooting percentage. Uh, with that, we give way to Shanna Goldman, who is from the Too Many Men podcast, and also you can read her at The Athletic and hear her here on a regular basis. Shanna, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I am doing well. We were talking about shooting percentage and Craig Janney, who is lower down the list than I thought he would be, uh, as is Alex Tangay, someone that I work with now. Craig Simpson is, is number one. Um, when you look at things like shooting percentage, like what, what are the sort of things that you're looking at around that? Certainly a volume of shot. Like Mike Gartner is not going to be anywhere near the top because the guy shot like 10 times a game. Ditto for Alex Ovechkin. But when you're doing research around shooting percentage, what do you pay attention to? Uh, first thing I look at is career averages. You know, if a player has a huge spike or a huge drop, we know that it tends to regress to to their average number. So sometimes what comes up will go down and vice versa. So that is the first gut check I think that has to be checked. And then we have to look at everything around it. What's their shot volume? Is that up this year? Is it down this year? Does that explain it? What's the shot location? Are they changing up things, you know, with their shot types are they using their forehand all the time and they're failing at it you know those are kinds of questions then we look at things like place in the lineup who are they playing with do they have a good passer do they not are they doing anything else besides taking the shot there are some players who are just really good finishers so we can start building around it with all different contexts to try to figure out what a player shooting percentage can tell us you know that's scratching the surface and then there's a million other things to go from there and you know the uh, you know a couple that I just pulled out that are current because I was going back with you know Charlie Simmer and Craig Simpson etc. Mike Bossy and Camille Henry, um, Leon Dreisaitl and Braden Point, two of our favorites, no surprise. And I, I'll tell you, like I I continue to be endlessly fascinated with with Leon Dreisaitl. Uh, I know a lot of it, you know, the legend of playing on one leg last year in the playoffs, which was remarkable and one of the great performances um, that we've seen in, in NHL playoff history. But just the way that he plays and the way that his, almost his signature move or his signature shot 
is supposed to be a goal that doesn't go in or is supposed to be a shot that doesn't go in. Like there have been players that have been really good at shooting successfully, essentially from right along the goal line. But I don't know that I've seen anyone do it better and with more consistency than Leon Dreisaitl. And he just shakes it off as if it's no big deal at all. When really it's kind of the hardest place to score from, I guess, outside of maybe behind the net, Shana. Yeah, I, look, I need to see more players attempt from behind the net, but that that's a big reason why we see a big <laughs> gap between, you know, expectations and reality for Dreisaitl because he is shooting from a spot that every piece of data you have, you know, expected goal models are based on past data. So if generally yeah. players don't score from there, it's going to be a low percentage shot. And from there, players generally don't score, but he has the finishing talent. And he tends to be on his off wing, so we know he has a better shooting angle, you know, shooting from the side he does. But it, it is super interesting. Yep. Like, he's really good with the one-timer, with the slap shot, with the wrist shot. So he has a couple really, really, really strong weapons. But he is a player, too, that it helps when he has someone to facilitate his game. You know, he doesn't do it completely on his own. There's a little bit of Yager in there too. The way that you know Yager would stick his ass out and sort of protect the puck and shield. Like there's like uh, there's there's so many different types of players that I see in Leon Dreisaitl. Like actually, and it's not just because they use the the same sort of canoe paddle blade, but I see some Datsuk in there. Uh, I mentioned I see some Yager in there as well. Like he's a to me he's he's one of the most fascinating players in the entire league. Like I'm just endlessly marveling uh, at Leon Dreisaitl. Is there someone in the league, Shane, and we'll, we'll, we'll jump off here. Is there anyone in the league right now that captures your attention and, and intrigue like Leon Dreisaitl does for me? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not prepared for this one. Oh, wow. Um, someone, I think Kaprizov. Like, I think Kaprizov is okay. one of the most skilled players in the league, and I think we've only seen some of what he can do. And it's so interesting to me that you would expect you know, like a signature shot from him too. And he really can score in every single different way. And he's a good passer too, which you don't always expect when they're the Connor McDavid's of the world. You know, you expect them, everyone to be like a dual threat, but it's always interesting to me too. Like this is a player you see how it doesn't matter how much pressure he's under, but he can make plays happen. Mm. And those plays might be a really good pass. That's why I saw Zuccarello picking up the goal scoring this year too. He's a little more willing to shoot off those passes. But he's someone to me that is super intriguing because I think that he has more that we haven't seen yet. I wonder what he'd look like in a more offensive situation, whether like he had stronger line mates, stronger team around him, different team styles. But he's he's intriguing for me. You know, sticking with um, sticking with Minnesota here for a second, uh, I want to get your thoughts on that. I don't want to call it a big trade, but it is a trade, and we don't see these in the NHL much except for trade deadline time. Um, sticking with Minnesota, I've kind of been making the point that the Matt Boldy deal isn't one that's going to look good one day. I look at it as if it's already good now. How do you see the 7 times 7 for Matt Boldy in Minnesota? I like it because I think we saw we're seeing teams trend towards signing players sooner in their careers to these big deals, which is what should be happening. If we look at aging curves, we know players tend to peak in their early to mid 20s. And that's the window you want to be maximizing what you're paying them. You want to be paying for current and future performance. You don't want it that you're purely paying for past performance because that's going to bite you to the middle or end of the contract. Yeah. So I like that for a ton of reasons. It makes sense for Minnesota because that's a team too that they have fallen into the trap of paying players too late, you know, like even Spurgeon's contract. And I think Spurgeon's fantastic. And I think that's a deal that still will look good towards the end of it until maybe the last year or two, you know, we want to mm. see players get paid in their prime and Minnesota is a team that need needs offense. And this is going to be a huge source of it. So pay them sooner than later. Pay that man. Uh, okay, Matt Nieto and Ryan Merkley uh, are now members of the Avalanche. Uh, Matt Nieto, we can say members of the Avalanche, comma, again. Uh, Jacob McDonald and Martin Kaut going the other way. You know, Elliot and I were mentioning it's, you know, change of scenery for a couple of young players. Wasn't working out where they were. Certainly Merkley um, having a hard time getting traction. Highly skilled offensive player defensively will certainly leave you wanting. And I think we're all wondering, you know, what happened with Kout. First round draft pick. Uh, there were big, big expectations for the, uh, for the check forward. How do you look at this deal, Shana Goldman? 
I think it's like a big change of scenery, right? Like we see this all the time with young players. It doesn't work out and they were highly touted. So why not give them a chance somewhere else instead of giving up on them entirely? Why not? Um, I think Colorado is really good at maximizing players. So let's see what they can do. And for the Sharks, you know, it's interesting. They need young talent. So Cout makes sense. That's the kind of risk you take right now. Just keep adding picks, prospects, all things you can do for future assets. They need that and they need cheap talent. So that's another plus right there. McDonald's an interesting name because he does have really good results with Colorado, but you have to take that with such a grain, a grain of salt. Like one, there's the surroundings Two, it's the fact that it wasn't in a huge sample and they've chosen to go with other players over him, you know, on the day to day in the lineup for a reason. So it's going to be interesting to see how he does when he doesn't have the support of the Colorado avalanche. And when he has to play a more regular role, which I think we can all anticipate is going to happen, especially if the sharks move players out at the deadline. You know, I'll be honest with you. When I saw, when I saw the deal originally, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, now Ryan Merkley's in the Avalanche organization here. My first thought was, and I know, like, I listen. Ryan Merkley shoots right, and Samuel Gerrard shoots left, so it's not a direct replacement. But I think we're all wondering, you know, with with new deals kicking in, most notably Nathan McKinnon next season. Uh, I know that Eric Johnson's contract goes away, but still, um, I can't help but thinking to myself, okay, is Colorado now starting to fill up the cupboards with you know young, inexpensive defensemen that can take roster spots maybe sooner than later? thereby opening up their ability to do something with Samuel Girard. I don't think they do Girard come trade deadline time. I think he's on this team, period. But after this season, it kind of feels to me like all bets are off. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. If you're a contending team, you have to find a way to maximize your cap situation, and you're going to be top-loaded, which the Avalanche are and about to be even more so. So that means using as much entry-level and cheap talent as you can find you know, the key is finding the right entry-level talent and not spending a ton to get it because you want to put your assets elsewhere. And generally, draft picks get moved pretty often. We have no idea how much Colorado is going to move, you know, in the near future, too. The good thing here is that mm. this isn't, you know, the 18-year-old you're drafting right now and you're hoping can develop. He is a little bit more ready in the sense of his age. But, he, I, I mean... I don't love that so many coaches are so, you know, stuck with handedness. And I do want to see it a little bit more that we see they started switching it up because there are left-handed defensemen who can play the right side a little bit more. Maybe they're better at receiving passes if they're turned that direction, or maybe they're better at threading passes. It, it really depends on the player's strength. But, you know, there's going to be players. Quinn Hughes is one of them that talked about how switching sides might unlock the offensive side of his game. So, that's something for me to watch for, mm. too. Like, how do they view him? Do they view him as someone strong enough? And, you know, if you switch sides, it might impact you defensively. Can they, you know, account for that enough with the right partnership? Or is the idea to keep him on his natural side and move things around elsewhere? So, I mean, I'm intrigued by that as well. Certainly in the, offense, in the offensive zone um, and, you know, on power plays. I mean, this is, you know, this was sort of, this was taught to, I think, everybody by by the Russians in 1972. Uh, where you want to have six in the middle for one timers specifically, it, it's it you know handedness there uh, can help create offense. The thing that I've always been told by coaches about you know the righty lefty thing when it comes to to blue liners, the the one example that always comes that always comes up is let's say you're a left hand shot and you're skating around your own net to make an outlet. Uh, if you're and you're skating around to the right hand side of the net, if you're a left hand shot. It takes that extra split second to get your stick free to make that pass. If you're a right-hand shot coming around the right side, it's available right away where it takes that extra half second to make that pass coming around the net. And listen, you know what four checks are like now. Like they are, they're fast. Like guys get on you quick. And if you can't get your stick out to make that pass, it, it can force a turnover in one of the most dangerous places. And that is right beside your net. So that's why I think a lot of coaches have always sort of defaulted to that, you know, we want the righty-lefty, we want the righty-lefty, although I'm with you. I think a lot of it is situational. I think more in your own zone, you want the righty-lefty. On the power play, I think you play with it a little bit more. Um, but I'm I'm like you. Like, I am curious what the, the future of the, the righty-lefty fascination is, is going to be in the NHL. 
Yeah, I want to see like on the power play, it makes sense. You can you can mitigate some of like maybe a player's defensive woes because you're controlling the puck the majority of the time. So it absolutely makes sense to take it the risk there. At even strength, I just want to see teams start spicing it up, and maybe it's something you kind of learn to have like a specialty. Like if you're playing the Carolina Hurricanes, one of the best forechecking teams in the league, and you can have a player that can mm-hmm. rove back to their natural side, by all means do that. But maybe you're playing a team that's a little bit weaker, you know, on the forecheck that you're like, you know what, we can take this risk. Or in these situations, we're willing mm-hmm. to take the risk. You know, we'll see it sometimes when a team's trailing in a game, they'll just start matching players by their talents alone, and they're not thinking about handedness. And that's what we should see a little bit more often. Say you have two really good right-handed defenders, and it's, as you know, you don't want to pull your goaltender, but you want your best offensive players out there. And you just say, they're both going up. Why not have that? So I think once we start seeing it normalized a little bit more in those types of situations, you can build from there on regular even strength play. Um, all right. So we've talked about the trade, um, Colorado and the San Jose Sharks. Let me um, let me ask you about what was the story of the week and really has kind of been the story of the week for a long time, the Vancouver Canucks. Now, we've seen two... We've seen two different versions of Vancouver. We've seen the one against the Chicago Blackhawks, and we saw the one last night against the Seattle Kraken. What do you make of Vancouver? Which one is closer to the real Canucks in your estimation? Now, we listen. We know there's going to be trades that are on the horizon. We know that's coming. But which version of the Vancouver Canucks is, is closest to the truth right now for you? So we have this segment on Too Many Men called We Don't Wish We Were You. And the Vancouver Canucks are the biggest repeat offender so far. <laughs> it's a very new segment, and I think they've probably taken up 70% of it. Um, I yeah, don't I like envy it. them. Yeah, why not? You know, I don't envy them. I don't want to fix their situation. Uh, I think they're in a tough spot. But I, I think, honestly, the team we saw last night is a little bit more indicative. Against the Blackhawks, honestly, that score should have been more lopsided than it was. And it wasn't because, oh, yeah. you know, the Blackhawks are – they're barely getting shots off and the Canucks are coasting and not doing what they need to do. The team that went down very early in the game against Seattle, that's the team we've known this season. They're the team in the beginning of the year that was going up in games and blowing it, or they're a team that goes down in games and has to try to find their way back and generally can't. They're not very resilient. They're not very good. And changing the coach, you know, can be an answer. It could be one of the many answers they need, but the problem is they need more than one answer. They need quite a few right now, and it doesn't seem like they have it. The roster construction is a problem. It was from day one. It's not surprising it's biting them now. And a change in direction, sure. But then you even look at some of the choices that have been made to change the direction, and you have to question whether it's right in the first place. But I don't think you'll ever find out until everything starts to change. Like It's just it's very messy there. We don't wish we were you, Vancouver. <laughs> it's a tough one. You know, Elliot and I were talking in the first hour about, you know, talk about, you know, situations you don't want to be in. All of a sudden, the Pittsburgh Penguins now find themselves in a situation where they might be saying, we didn't expect to be in the goalie market, but we might have to be now. And we don't need our goaltending to undo everything that we've done up front. And we've keeping the band back together and, uh, you know, uh, Rust and Malkin, Latang, Crosby, all of it. Like, we know what the what the game plan is here. Uh, and we don't want the whole thing to be undone because our goalies can't stay healthy and or they can't perform. Uh, I would imagine that in your new segment, the Pittsburgh Penguins could probably find some love there. Um, which team, because I I think I'm, I'm most curious about the San Jose Sharks, which team, Shana, do you expect to be the spiciest come trade deadline, whether it's by way of acquiring or by way of selling? Um, so if we're going by way of acquiring, I kind of expect I'm torn between, I think, okay, I'm going to say Buffalo because I think Seattle's too smart to just go balls to the wall right now. And they totally could, they have the assets and they might want to maximize on this season, but I think that they're going to have a more measured approach to it. For me, it's the Sabres because Buffalo can do things that maybe other teams can't. They have the assets, they have the cap space. They're very good. They're kind of in a playoff position. They're like they're in the mix. They're a bubble team, and they could try to maximize on that, but they mm-hmm. also have a big future to plan for. So they're a team that could be in on players that maybe a contender can't be because of the cap space situation, or maybe they can think about the future more. You know, teams looking at Timo Meyer, some of them might just want him for the year, which is not a great way to spend when you could have him for a lot more than that, and you should want to, you know, want him for longer than that. They're mm-hmm. a team that can manage it. So 
They're the team to watch for me. They have very smart minds in that front office. We think of the Pittsburgh Penguins winning Stanley Cups. We think of the moves made. Sam Ventura was a big part of it. He's with Buffalo now. I want to know what they're cooking up. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I think that, you know, it, it sounds very much, or at least it feels very much, like Sam Ventura was behind um, the, uh, the, the the signing of Eric Comrie. Um, specifically, and it sounds like we're going to see Comrie. I know he's just coming off injury. This will be his second game since coming back. It looks like he's in there uh, against the uh, against the Winnipeg Jets later on tonight. You know, you you mentioned you mentioned Timo Meyer, and to me, he's a fascinating one. And I've always liked him going back to watching him play in the queue so many years ago. He, um, I've always looked at him and said, you know, if he's in a bigger market, you know, got more oxygen, more media oxygen, we'd be talking about him as if he is. You know, the new age style of power forward. And to me, I look at a team, and it's the obvious one. Like, we look at the New Jersey Devils, and we say they need some help in their top six. They also need some size, you know, heading into the playoffs, um, you know, where, you know, seven-game series, wars of attrition, etc. You need a little bit more, you know, a little bit more, more size in your lineup. And he can score goals, and he's a skilled player, etc., 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 to me, it might be the obvious, and you know, listen, it's not as if the you know the, the New Jersey isn't trying to corner the market on Swiss hockey players, whether it's Nico Hischer or Jonas Siegenthaler. Um, I know it's an obvious one, Shana, but are there any other teams other than New Jersey that really make sense for someone like Timo Meyer here? Yeah, so the Devils obviously make a ton of sense for all the right reasons because, like you said, they could get size. And in this case, this isn't, let's go for someone slower and heavier that's going to help us for playoff hockey. And then it completely contradicts what the team's about instead of leaning into your strengths. Like, I don't know, the Florida Panthers did last year. And, you know, the Swiss dominance, I think that's a very cool angle too. Uh, It's like the Carolina Hurricanes with Mm -hmm. Finns. But the thing with the Devils is they have a tendency to say they're going to be spicy and then they're not. We saw that pretty much all the last year. So, you know, I, I, I kind of pumped the brakes a little bit there. The team for me that I think makes a ton of sense, I think Winnipeg could make sense because what they're missing right now, if you go through what a contender should have, they need one more high-end winger, but they generally don't make a big splash either. For me, I look at the Kraken because this is a player – they need, a, they need star power. They have some of the best forward depth in the league. They are greater than the sum of their parts mm-hmm. because of it. Few players have as – I don't think any team has as many unique goal scorers as the Kraken. But it would help to have star power at the top of their lineup. Matty Beniers is going to be that. but And I think Shane Wright is going to be that in the long term too. But to have a little bit more right now and the benefit with Meyer versus pretty much any other winger on the market is you're not getting it now. You're getting it now yeah. and in the future. You're planning ahead with him. I look at Seattle and go, that makes too much sense. Are they, well, we'll end on this one. Are they the most, by way of acquiring, are they the most intriguing team to you? Or do you look at Seattle and say, yeah, Meyer fits, but this is still like Ron Francis is a very conservative general manager. We know that. Um, He's very smart. And he's very safe. Uh, do you look at Seattle and say they're going to be frisky, or you know they're going to you know they're going to put the pens away? What do you think? I don't think they're going to be frisky, but I think if they make a move, it's going to be very calculated. Again, another team with very smart minds. Alex Mandrecki, you know, is leading the way. They yep. have Danny Chu. They have so many smart minds. I think that can help for sustainability checks, for keeping things grounded with that and knowing when to spend. I think they're going to be super smart with that, with aging curves and all information that you could have, you know, watching the game and pulling the data and melding it together. They're one of the best teams with that right now in their front office. So I think he can trust that, that if this is a player to go for. And I really do think he is. I think he's that good that maybe they spice it up for a player like Meyer. I won't be surprised if they just make middle-of-the-road moves that kind of help them right now, but I just don't see them mortgaging their future on anything without a return like Meyer. You know, that's the only way I think they move big pieces at the deadline. It has right. to be someone that's going to help them in the long term. Okay, let me squeak one thing under the wire here. 30 seconds left. Uh, listen, that Islanders game last night was tough. If you're an Islanders fan, games like that, you have to have. You know, I don't want to say that, you know, did the Islanders lose the season on that game last night? 
it's only January 26th, but man, it felt like it, Shana. Uh, where do you see the Islanders right now? That was a that was one they they have to win that game against Ottawa last night. What what do you say in 30 seconds on the Islanders? They need help. They need serious help, and they've needed it for some time. And I just don't see management as the right team to get them the help that they need. They need a score at the like that is what they need. And I understand maximizing this core. There's a ton of reason to do that, but it's going to take some work around it. And I just don't know if they're creative enough to go for it. It would be nice if Lou Lamorello just once could acquire a player he hasn't had before and really go outside the box. But <laughs> they need innovation, and they're just not going to get it right now. Uh, always good stuff. Uh, you be well. We'll check back soon. And love the new segment on the podcast. That sounds very spicy. Did I say that right? Very spicy? Yes. Yes. Thanks for having me. Continue continued success the great shannon goldman from the athletic and the too many men podcast up against it got to hit a break going to come back with louis debrusque uh talking about the edmonton oilers and I, I am curious as well about jake's experiences although he got injured uh in the winter classic as well we'll get dad's thoughts so he'll be analyst slash hockey dad uh louis debrusque joining me here as the merrick show continues across the Sportsnet radio network Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. So just talking about Louis DeBrusque a couple of moments ago here on the program during the random player of the day, which was Craig Janney, Louis DeBrusque was part of the trade, uh, the Tampa-Arizona deal that saw Louis DeBrusque become a member of the Coyotes and Janney a member of the Tampa Bay Lightning. And I get a tweet from someone saying, Louis DeBrusque was also a great player for the Stratford Cullitons Junior B team back in the day. That's a good way to bring on our man from Hockey Night in Canada, the NHL on Sportsnet, former NHLer, the great Louis DeBrusque. How are you, pal? I'm doing well, Jeff. The old Culloden's, eh? Yeah, I spent a year in Stratford. It was my first year away from home playing hockey. And I'll tell you, I remember more about that year than I think any year in my junior um, career just because it was the first year away from home and everything was uh, it was new and it was it was an amazing experience. What a great organization that was. And um, Kevin and Joan Aitchison yeah. were my, my billets at the time in Stratford. And you know what? They were great people um, raising a young family and uh, – it was good. You know what? It was an adventurous year. It ended up getting me drafted in one of the nights the next year. So it was, uh, it was a really successful yeah. year. Yeah. What a great organization. They're a real, real pipeline to the United States for um, scholarships for, the, for college down in the USA. Yep. And I went on a few recruiting trips and almost went that route, to be honest with you, Jeff. It was just so appealing. It was, uh, it was amazing, the oh, trips yeah. that we went on and got to see some of the campuses. But junior hockey was calling me, and that's the direction I went. But it was a tough decision at uh, 16, 17 years of age. So I, I am curious, which which U.S. colleges intrigued you? Like, listen, we think of you in junior hockey playing with the London Knights. So yeah. Which which U.S. colleges? Which U.S. colleges intrigued you, Louis? You know what? The one that I most probably was leaning towards was Bowling Green. Had a good recruitment trip there. Rob oh, Blake yeah. was on the team at that time, and uh, I remember talking to Blakey. Yeah. We still discussed that trip. But Michigan State also was another one that I recruited down to. And uh, I like it was between Michigan State and Bowling Green. Bowling Green for me though was a little smaller. It was. Um, it had a real neat feel to it. It was almost the town was the school, and I came from a small town in Port Elgin, Ontario. So I just figured it was more up my alley than the giant campus that was Michigan State. It was incredible, but uh, yeah, I was lean, I was leaning towards Bowling Green. That was the that was the team in school that if I would have gone college route, I would have liked to have played for them if uh, they would have had. So was Rob Blake then recruiting from his old Stratford Culleton squad because he was a, a Culleton as well? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was that part, yeah, was that, was that part of his like his like, job at Bowling Green? It was. You know, that was the job of the players. You'd come in, they'd show you around. I got to watch a game. It was a great game. And then um, afterwards, got to celebrate with the guys. And uh, they take you under your wing and show you the ropes a bit. And it was just a really cool experience. Uh, and same with Michigan State. Michigan State was a little more formal. It was just a one day in the daytime. But... I'll tell you, it was uh, it was it was a neat process. It was foreign to me, and but it opened my eyes that there was there was certainly opportunities in different avenues to go to. And you, you have to remember, Jeff, and you'll remember back then it was there wasn't the internet and the connection. I didn't even know I was going to get drafted into the OHL. Nope. I truly didn't. I had no idea I was going to get drafted. I ended up going in the first round, 
which my dad kind of had a little bit of a feeling because he was the guy up in the stands in the junior games talking to the scouts. And, uh, you know, he was constantly ah. talking to teams and scouts. So he kind of had a little bit more of an understanding of what was going on than I did. But uh, I was just on the ice playing. You know, that's just what we did. We went, went went to the rink. You played your game. You played at that level that you were at. You played the best you possibly could at that level. And if it took you somewhere else, then great. Um, and that's kind of how we went about our business. You know, that that's curious because, listen, obviously you're a hockey dad and we, we think of your son. And I, I do want to ask you about the Winter Classic and Jake, and I, yeah. I know he's dinged. But listen, um, I, you, know, you mentioned your dad was on top of the whole thing. And, hey, Louie, just keep on playing and I'll talk to the, the scouts. How active were you when, when Jake was playing? Like even before... <laughs> Before he went to Swift Current and then uh, over to Red Deer, um, how and then in, into the NHL, like how active were you talking to scouts from various NHL teams? Did you have a feeling he was going to end up a Boston Bruin? Like how active were you through all of it, Louis? You know, I mean, there were certainly discussions, Chef, and I know I think at that time I was doing some panel work. You and I were working together in Toronto at that time yep. throughout that period of time as well, yep. and I. Um, you know, I kind of, I did it the same way my dad did it. I kind of just was on the outside looking in, you know, had an understanding of what was going on. But at the same time, I still believe it's take care of your business here and, and don't worry, you'll get recognized. If, you, if you're doing your job at the level you're playing at, then people will take notice. And I knew people were taking notice. So that was all that I really worried about was, that, hey, you know what? Trust me, people are talking about you. And, uh, you know what, people uh, are starting to get a buzz around you, and there's potential. I, I felt he was going to get drafted. I didn't know he was going to go in the first round, to be honest with you. I was even nervous sitting in Florida at the rink in that first round. That was a huh. very strong draft. 2015, you look back at that draft, I'm like, I still Connor. look at it and go, wow, it's there's Connor. a ton of, well, yeah, it's Connor's <laughs> draft. But if you look throughout that first round into the second round, yeah. I mean, there's a ton of players that, Let's put it this way. It's very similar to the 03 draft, in my opinion. I think it's going to be very similar to that draft in the sense that a lot of these players that we're seeing now are the best players on their team from that draft, and yeah, they're I going agree. to be for a number of years. They're going to be for a number of years, which is impressive to come out of one, uh, one, one draft pool. But, yeah, you know, I was, I, he was way more confident. It was funny because we're sitting there, and I was sitting at the end of the row, and I know we did, our, we did the draft sports net, and we had uh, – you know, people yep. in the stands and all that. I'm sitting at the end of the road. Jake's right beside me. And then, it, you know, the rest of the family was into the middle of the aisle. So we get into about five or six picks and he leans over to me and he says, Hey, when I get drafted, I'm going to go that way and hug everybody that way. And then I'm going to come and hug you at the end before I go to the podium. And I started laughing and I was like, yeah, I'm glad you're confident kid. Like in my mind, I'm thinking, Hey, I'm glad you're confident. You think you're going here. Cause you know, I've seen stories where, you know, kids have sat the whole day and they don't get drafted. It's, you know, it's, it, yeah. you know, so oh, yeah. I don't know. I, I think, don't get me wrong. I, I was very confident that he was going to be drafted. I wasn't extremely confident he was going to be drafted in the first round because you never really know. And like I said before, I wasn't, talking with a ton of teams that were saying, Hey, we're, we're taking your kid. It was, just, I stayed on the outside and you know, that's just kind of how my dad did it. It's how I did it. I was there to support my kid in any way I could. And, and that was really what, uh, how I felt about going about it. Let, let, let me ask one more question about Jake here, because uh, as a hockey parent, you look at, at your kid in the NHL and you're looking at the experiences that he's having. Uh, the first, you know, the first game with the rookie lap, the first shift, the first time he touches an NHL puck during a game, the first goal, the first fight, the first whatever, Stanley Cup, like all these types of things. What's going through your mind watching your kid play at the Winter Classic? And I'll tell you, like I was, I was, Elliot and I were there, we're sitting there. When that shot came in from the point and hit Jake, we thought, uh oh. Like, and he ends up scoring, but with like right away, yeah. it's like, oh man, DeBrusque has got to, got to be hurt bad. It turns out he was, but finished the shift, finished the game, scored the goals, like all of it. It was a, a great moment for Jake. But just some thoughts on watching your son play in a Winter Classic at Fenway, Louie. Yeah, you know, it's. It's been remarkable. I mean, just going back to even his first game, which was a special moment. We were all there in the building, got to see him score his first goal, which doesn't always work out that way. And I know that from being around the game for a long time. Um, so I understood how special that moment was just for us to be there in that moment and be able to celebrate that with him. Um, the stars don't always align that way, but they certainly align that day for us. And I'll always remember that. I've had some great experiences doing the work that I do, being a commentator and being able to call his games firsthand. The interview we did in the bench one day was a special moment for me. That's great. 
For me, for me, I got to tell you though, Jeff, I uh, I get emotional when when people when I see players play their first game and I see them come out and take that speed around the rink. And my son, no different. I mean, it's obviously a little extra special when it's my son that was doing it. But I always get a little bit emotional when I see that because I understand that it's really difficult to get to that point in time, just to get that one game in the NHL, and then from that point in time to try and stay there is even more difficult. Uh, it's it's a special yeah. moment. It should be celebrated, and and I always love celebrating because it's a big, big moment. And not only that individual players' lives, but the families' lives that have gone through so much with that player to get to that point in time. And that was no different with us. There was it was my my wife always likes to use the the phrase it's a village. A village raises a child, and a village and and a community, and you know it could be a whole city or multiple cities, and people get an individual to an opportunity that Jake had to play for the Boston Bruins in his first game, and there were tons of people from everywhere that he played minor hockey in Phoenix and Edmonton, you know, traveling teams, you name it. Every single one of those people that had a, a hand in him doing what he did helped him get to that point, and and I and I understand that and I respect that, but. For me sitting here, yeah, I know I do this for a living. And, you know, I get to watch the greatest player in the game play every single night. And I have no problem saying that because that's my opinion. And I believe it to be true because I get to see him on a daily basis. And, you know, I still get emotional, though, when I see my kid put the puck in the net. I, when he scores a goal, I still, you know, the you know, the adrenaline goes, the hair in the back of the neck goes up. It never gets old. Um, when he has a big hit, when he gets yeah. injured, I saw that shot too. When he took that shot in the Winter Classic and it dropped him, I knew, oh. I knew that it hit him hard. But I've oh. seen him get hit with pucks like a thousand times. So I'm like, okay, he shrugged it off. He should be okay. I didn't know that it was uh, an injury that was going to keep him out for a while. But um, no, it was special. That was a special moment. I know he was really geared up for that particular game. He's played in three outdoor classics. And uh, <laughs> out of his yeah. mouth, he says, you know, I haven't really done a whole lot in the game. So. I want to have an impact in this one. So um, that was his words going into the game, and uh, he certainly had an impact. That was great. Yeah. It was a special moment for him and us. was awesome. Now, you, you mentioned the best player in the game, and that's Connor McDavid. The Hart Trophy conversation is already done, so we move on because you're right. Like there, There's Connor McDavid and there's everybody else. But under the umbrella of everybody else, I was talking about Leon Dreisaitl earlier in the program. He's one of my favorite players. Um, every every – any – any time you talk to anyone who follows a game and measures a game using advanced stats and analytics and shot quality and places you should shoot will tell you where Leon Dreisaitl dines out, you should never shoot a puck. You should never shoot a puck from right, right away. Like, it's incre- right along the red line, and he does it with pinpoint accuracy, and it defies all logic. Um, to me, that's one of the skill sets that is rare and unique and is exclusive to Leon's, almost exclusive to Leon Dreisaitl. And, what do you, you think know what? of when you see a big guy like that? Well, you know what, Jeff? I'll, I'll even add to that, too. And, it, and what it does, it's a great point by you, and I love it. And, and it's funny because it just shows how smart he is as well. He's such an intelligent hockey player. He, and, you know, we talk about cerebral players, you know, hockey IQ. He made a pass last night again, and, and listen, the team really fought it last night. I thought it was one of those games where the puck oh, was yeah. bouncing on them. They were forcing passes, a lot of hold passes through sticks instead of just maintaining the pressure and holding on to pucks and just, you know, just really kind of making a team defend them for the entire night. They kind of almost shot themselves in the foot with turning the puck over last night. It's a lesson to learn. They got a point out of it, and it was just, you know, you've won six in a row. The Columbus Blue Jackets, who are trying to just dig into the season any way, shape, or form, had an emotional night Monday night in Calgary with Johnny Gaudreau being back there. It seemed to ignite them, and they played a hard game. You have to give credit to the opposition, the way they were able to shut things down, and they were able to pick passes off throughout the entire night. But in saying that, he did make a backhand pass um last night that was just it was one of those passes that you just go that's leon you know he he doesn't look he comes down the right hand side he's on his backhand side so he's got eyes in the side of his head and he just threads about a 15 20 foot pass through a couple sticks a little sauce onto the tape in the slot right on the tape Mm. and i'm just you know and and he makes it look so easy and it happens on such a regular basis that you just go people are like oh yeah there's a pass no big deal but i'm like no that's that's an incredible pass like that's like there's not many guys that can make that play number one to fend off a guy to do it in motion and then to have the accuracy not looking to put it right on the tape um but to get back to to the the how smart he is I think he's just kind of morphed into that position where he knows that he can get lost. 
I always go back to Brett Hall. Brett Hall was a player that I played against a lot in my career. I got to cover him when I first started doing uh, the broadcasting in Phoenix with the Coyotes. He came in and played for Gretz for a year or for part of a year. But the thing is, he, we always talked about him getting lost. He would just get lost in the shuffle. So the, the play would be going on. You're like, how does a you know, 70 goal scorer, 50 goal scorer every year get, get lost in the shuffle? And that is their special skill. Their special skill is that they know exactly yeah. where to be at the right moment in time to be open, number one, for the opportunity to receive the pass, but also in a position to shoot it. You can't teach it. It's really hard to teach that. And certain players have that and certain players don't. And the greatest scorers in the game all have that. But Leon Dreisaitl has that. He truly does. And, and, he's, and he's got the rare combination that you see, of, in my opinion, being the best passer from both flanks, backhand and forehand in the league. That's my opinion. And also mm-hmm. one of the deadliest shooters in the game. Like he has a deadly combination of being able to beat you with the pass anywhere on the ice. But also if you leave him open for a millisecond, he has that great one-timer and release, which is almost a half slapper. He doesn't even really tickle the Raptors with it, but he gets it off so quickly and so accurately. He just missed one last night on that same situation you were talking about. He flares out to that spot, gets lost, and playing yeah. with the elite players that he's playing with, they know where to look for him. And that's where chemistry develops. But I agree with you. You know what? Uh, we're watching two guys right now that are 1-2 and two in the National Hockey League and scoring points this year. They're 1-2 and two over the last seven years together. They've been pacing the league. Yeah. And I don't, I don't really see them slowing down, Jeff. I see them just continuing on in this, this, uh, this direction because that's what they are. They've just really shown the league that this is how we play. This is what we do. And now I believe you're seeing other guys just get dragged into that where their game has been elevated so much. And Zach Hyman, Evander Kane came on board last year. You've got Ryan Nugent Hopkins, who's always been that 200-foot, in my opinion, defensively conscious player i think he's starting to really go on the offense now and really try and and make things happen and he's a driver he's a real driver uh, for evanson yep. to play the wing he's maybe their best left winger when he plays wing but he's also a pretty <laughs> darn good centerman so it allows jay woodcroft to do some different things with the lineup combination and uh, when you always have that guy that you can count on so much in nugent hopkins it allows him to load up dry and mcdavid and i know nugent hopkins gets you know kind of out of that talk conversation quite a bit but not around these parts around these parts people understand that it's Nugent Hopkins that allows Dreisaitl and McDavid to play together because he's solid on that line and can play with anybody it's true uh on that we'll let you go and listen to, to the point about Dreisaitl I always think about the, the old line by Brett Hall sometimes the best way to be in the play is to be out of the play and, yeah. and then he just pops in and suddenly the light goes off uh louis it's been great catching yeah, up as always yeah. um always love your insight great conversation hey. about jake as well take care pal you be good i will i always think of kaiser so say poof he's gone okay hey? <laughs> <laughs> you lose him and the puck's in the back of the he's net gone. look out all right you know why, you know why, Agent Coolion? Because I'm smarter than you, Agent Coolion. That's why. Because I'm smarter than you. Oh, I love that movie. Uh, all good. Thanks to Louis DeBrus for stopping by the program. Shana Goldman as well. Dan Dunleavy and Elliot Friedman. Merrick Show returns tomorrow at noon across the Sportsnet Radio Network.